The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Good evening. Welcome back. It's good to see you. Hope you had a wonderful afternoon of fellowship. Wonderful afternoon of rest on the Lord's Day. And it's our joy tonight to be back in the book of Revelation. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. I'm grateful for our Sunday evening worship service. (laughs) It's good to be able to sit under God's word. Um, This uh, study has already been a tremendous blessing to me. I hope it has been to you as well. And uh, we need to learn this, don't we? Uh, We need the Lord. We need the Lord's word. We need to understand what's going on here. And this is very, very helpful, very encouraging to us uh, as the church in our day. So we're looking forward to working through Revelation. It'll be a couple of years, but that's good. We're not in any kind of hurry, are we? (laughs) Unless the Lord comes back, we'll take a few years and study this book together. It'll be a joy before we move on to other things. And we're going to learn a lot uh, as we work through it. So tonight, our sermon is entitled Division. This is part three. We've taken three sermons now. We're going to close out chapter one tonight. Taking three sermons to consider the vision uh, that the Lord has given uh, John, verses 12 through 20 in particular, John's vision of the Son of Man now, and uh, John then relating that vision to us in this text, Revelation chapter 1, in particular, verses uh, 12 through 20, and tonight we're going to look specifically at verses 17 through 20. So I'd like to read this text for us, and then we'll pray and consider it together. Look at Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 for context. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. This is the word of God, amen. Amen. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful, Lord, that you have condescended, um, stooped, as it were, to reveal yourself to us sinful people in the person 
of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that By revealing yourself and disclosing yourself in this way, Lord, we see Jesus Christ, and as we see him revealed on the pages of Scripture, we know you. And we're grateful, Lord, grateful for the revelation that we've been given here. What a, a tremendous gift to the church, a gift of your mercy and kindness and compassion to us in giving us this letter, a letter to the church militant to encourage us in our difficulty, to encourage us in adversity, to encourage us, Lord, with what will soon take place, what will soon come, uh, that we might, Lord, consider you are sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass, that you have ordained all things whatsoever that come to pass. And Lord, for our good, for the glory of your own name, uh, you've uh, ordained all things that take place uh, as pertains to your church. We know you love your church, Lord. We know that you care for us. Uh, We know, Lord, that uh, you are the one who directs our steps. And we pray you'd be uh, care for us, Lord, Uh, protect us, preserve us, Um, pour out your grace upon us, Lord. We are in need of you. We're in need of aid, in need of help. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand how it applies to us in our day, in our circumstances, in our lives, that we might live for you in faith, that we would not be turned to the right hand or to the left, but would follow you in faith, Lord, as you preserve and protect us. Thank you for our time together tonight to consider these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the title of our sermon, The Vision, part three, Revelation chapter one, verses 12 through 20. So welcome back to our Sunday evening study through the book of the Revelation. Uh, John, uh, the beloved apostle, our brother and our companion, as he describes himself in the tribulation with us in this current tribulation, John, our fellow laborer in the kingdom, John, our fellow laborer in the endurance and the, the perseverance of Jesus Christ. John, through this vision given to him now by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, has ushered us into the very throne room of God. Uh, That's where the Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty, and we have been given now a vision of the risen and exalted Son of Man. Uh, Not as he is at some distant point in the future. This is, uh, the book of Revelation is not only concerning itself with what takes place at the return of Jesus Christ or at the consummation of all things, but a vision of Jesus Christ as he is even right now as risen, uh, reigning, ruling in glory, the God-man at the right hand of the majesty. So in the spirit then, on the Lord's day, as John is receiving this vision, John hears a great voice, a megas voice, a great trumpet sounding forth, uh, which is a manifestation of divine power and divine authority. And so John then turns to see the voice that spoke with him. And what does John see? He finds one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of the lampstands, standing in the midst of his churches. So in, in terms then descriptive of those who serve in the temple, if you remember the description of the priests serving in the temple, in those terms we now see in the vision of John, our great high priest, he's clothed as it were in temple garments, clothed with, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. And as our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, uh, serves, always living to make intercession for us, he's not left us orphans, as he has promised, but rather he is seen as one tending to the lampstands, tending to the churches, trimming the wicks, as it were, supplying them with the oil of the Spirit to strengthen them for mission. We see the Lord Jesus Christ himself at work in the midst of his churches, caring for us, directing our steps, guiding our way. So in terms then that converge with Daniel's description of the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7, 
We see the Lord with his head and hair white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. He is the one who is the great judge, the one who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. No creature hidden from his sight, but all things naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, his voice the sound of multitude of waters, many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So in his right hand, his scepter hand, as we've studied, as we've heard, the lights or the messengers, the angelos of the churches, which shine as lights in the darkness. You remember Matthew chapter 5 in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. It's not a lamp hidden under a basket, but lights set atop a lampstand, so shining before men that they may see their good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Daniel describes them as those who are wise, shining like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And here in the Lord's right hand, his scepter hand, we see the stars of the churches. They take into the darkness, into the darkness of this world, they take a message of light. They take the light of the word into this dark world, the light of the word being the Lord himself. The sharp two-edged sword of the spirit that proceeds from his mouth, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It does not merely cut on one edge with the edge of salvation. It also cuts with the edge of condemnation. The word of salvation to all those who believe, who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the word of destruction, a word of condemnation, a word of judgment to those who refuse him who speaks from heaven. So John, for John, this vision is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in deity. It is a picture, if you will, of the divine magnificence, of the divine power of Jesus Christ exalted as God. And his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. As Daniel has said, light dwells with him. Uh, It's the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that is the light of heaven, that is the light of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And that light which shines in the darkness, the darkness did not dispel it, did not defeat it. Many of you, if you're reading in the New King James, it says, does not comprehend it. It means that it does not defeat it. Darkness cannot dispel the light. A light in a dark room dispels the darkness. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So now having seen then the revelation of John, last Lord's Day, verses 12 through 16, we now see the reaction of John then to this revelation in verse 17. Right, so John, now responding to this revelation of Jesus Christ, and if you can imagine, right, overwhelming sound, unspeakable glory, blinding light, John says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. John passes out is what happens. In a moment, the sight of Christ in his glory, the sound of omnipotent power in his voice, the voice that Moses described on the mountain at Sinai that he was terrified to hear, John is gripped with fear. His knees buckle. John collapses into a heap. He passes out, literally. Now, remember, this is the one with whom we must give an account. Uh, John is a grown man. John is given a a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and John faints. (laughs) 
Daniel has a similar vision. If you remember Daniel in chapter 8 and again in chapter 10, Daniel has a similar vision with a similar response. Listen to the text there from chapter 10. Daniel says, I lifted my eyes, looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. You see the similarity? And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great terror fell even upon them. So that they fled to hide themselves. Can you imagine a sight? In one sense, it's astonishing, magnificent to us, isn't it? But in another sense, terrifying to have seen such things, to have heard such things, that the men who were with Daniel fled in terror to hide themselves. Therefore, Daniel says, I was left alone. And when I saw this great vision, no strength remained in me. My vigor was turned to frailty in me. I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Daniel passes out, as it were. When Moses saw the manifestation of God on the mountain, Exodus 19, heard the voice, the sound of his voice like a trumpet, Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Joshua, encountering the angel of the Lord on the banks of the Jordan, fell on his face to the earth and worshiped, fell on his face. Manoah and his wife in Judges 13 encounter the pre-incarnate Christ. They fell on their faces to the ground. They thought they were going to die. John explains, the apostle John, explains in John 12 that Isaiah saw him, saw the risen and exalted Lord, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, seated upon the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, and Isaiah cries out, woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah undone, undone by the vision. Peter, been fishing on the boat all night, hadn't caught anything. (laughs) Many of us have had fishing trips just like that. The Lord calls to him, tells Peter, Peter, launch out into the deep, cast your nets, Peter says, Lord, we've not caught anything all night. But nevertheless, at your word, I'll do what you say. So he launches out in the deep, throws the net over the side of the boat, draws in a great catch, a miraculous catch. Peter realizes that this is, is the Lord. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And Peter, what is Peter's response to that revelation? The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to Peter's own mind, to Peter's own heart in that moment that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, Peter fell to his face on the ground and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. In response to that kind of revelation of who Jesus Christ is, as simple as that may sound, and what is Peter's response? Peter's response is the only rational response of a sinful human being. He falls to the ground on his face and says to Jesus Christ, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. What is man that you are even mindful of him? When the Lord was transfigured on the mount, Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, John said his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. 
And they heard the voice of God and they fell on their faces terrified. On the night in which the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, more than 600 soldiers were there to arrest him. When the Lord asked who it was that they were seeking, they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. When the Lord answered, I am, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. The apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ confronts him on the road. Paul falls to the ground when he hears his voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine? Blinding light, a voice of many waters, like a trumpet. This is the common experience. I would submit to you, this is the rational experience, the right experience, the common experience of those who have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in power and in glory. One day, brothers and sisters, we'll encounter him. We'll see him as he is, exalted in glory. And that's not a vision, brothers and sisters, that we should run from, but one whom we should cling to. He has redeemed us from our sin. He has set us in the heavenlies. He has adopted us. We are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. This is the reaction. What we see in John's revelation is the reaction of those to whom he has revealed himself in power and in glory. It's the feeble, frail, weak response of sinful, fallible, and frankly, temporal man to his divine glory, to his divine power, to his divine holiness, and his divine authority. In him we are made to live forever, however, and we will live forever with him. When he is revealed to be as he is, though, fallen men, sinful men, hide their faces. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Just a couple of pages to the right. Look at Revelation chapter 6 and drop down to verse 12 with me. An example of this from Revelation. Look at verse 12. I looked then when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Those men who are seen by men in this life to be powerful or to be strong or to be mighty, men of war, so to speak, mighty men, men of valor, crumble, crumble before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. There are many, many today who go about their lives, go about living as as though there were no Lord Jesus Christ, as though he were not sovereign, as though he does not rule and reign in glory and in power and in might, and live their lives in this presumptuous, haughty, and audacious, irreverent way, disobedient in rebellion against the Lord, have no concern whatsoever for his power and his might and his glory and his dominion and his might, 
and will one day face this Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. The great day of his wrath is soon to come, and our God is a consuming fire. One day soon, we're all going to see him in judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The apostle Paul knew that terror. Peter knew that terror. Isaiah knew that terror. John knew that terror. The response of sinful men to the holiness and power and glory and dominion and might of the Lord's Christ. That is a vision that we shall either run to or run from. If you are found in that day to be in your sin, having never turned from your sin to to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not trusting Jesus Christ for the love that Jesus Christ has outpoured on his own people, if you're not trusting him, then you have every reason to run and flee. There is no escape. There is no escape. What keeps us in our experience? Like when we read the Bible, when we consider who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, what keeps us from a healthy and godly experience of this fear as we consider the one before whom we must give an account? There are people scattered across the globe professing Christians who, like us, they've never been given this particular vision, have never seen Christ in this way, except as revealed on the pages of Scripture, but they've not been given a vision like John was given, or like Paul was given, or like Isaiah was given. Well, what keeps us from being able to enter into a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed here on the pages of Scripture? What keeps us from seeing him in that light? From having a healthy, godly fear, a healthy, godly respect, reverence, awe for who he is and what he's done. What keeps us from that? Right? What promotes or provokes man's pride to such a degree that we refuse or can't see him in this way, can't acknowledge him in this way? What is it? It's ignorance, it's blindness. Neglect ignorance of our own sin, ignorance of his holiness, a refusal to believe with the eyes of faith the word of God and the way that he's described here, not seeing him in his power and in his might, in his holiness, not seeing him as John does. Brothers and sisters, when we read the Bible, when we consider who Jesus Christ is, we need to look to Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith. We need to look to him. We need to see our God as a consuming fire. It is that holy, reverent, healthy, Godward, godly fear that is, as Albert Martin says, the soul of godliness. In Romans chapter 3, Paul describes the wicked. Listen to how Paul describes the wicked. Romans chapter 3, verse 14. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The wicked are simply unable to see him in that way. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He simply can't see. He's not given a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ 
in that way. He can't comprehend him in that way. He flatters himself in his own eyes. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, Paul says. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He does not abhor evil. The one who sees Jesus Christ exalted in that way, the one who sees Jesus Christ in holiness, in power, and in might, abhors evil, abhors all that stands against him. If that lack of fear is characteristic of the wicked, then it's the presence of the fear of the Lord that should characterize the righteous. We are those who are God-fearers. We're to fear the Lord. Multiple times in the Bible, those who love the Lord, those who follow the Lord, are called God-fearers. We're instructed to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Albert Martin, listen. The fear of God is a massive and dominant theme in Scripture. When our spiritual forefathers desired to describe someone who is characterized by genuine godliness, they would often call him a God-fearing man. This designation reflected the fact that men realized the fear of God was nothing less than the soul of godliness. Take away the soul from the body, and all you have left in a few days is a stinking carcass. Take away the fear of God from any profession of godliness, and all that is left is the stinking carcass of Pharisaism, barren religiosity, or calculated hypocrisy. True. Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. Chapter 15, verse 3. There they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They sing these words, saying, verse 3, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. There is coming a day, that day coming soon, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming soon where everyone will fear the Lord. Either terror in terror, wanting to flee, in their own sin, or trusting him, having entrusted themselves to him, clinging to him with the eyes of faith for our salvation, for our deliverance, as our great and mighty savior, amen? You see, for the believer, this isn't a fear that sends you running from Christ, hiding in the cleft of the rock that rocks may fall on us, but it's a fear that causes you to cling more tightly. He's our salvation from wrath, you see? He is our deliverance from judgment. But that reverential fear is far from being the absence of it. You should fear. We should fear. It is right, right that created human beings, creatures like us, sinful, rebellious creatures like us, should fear the Lord. Listen, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. 
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. The fear of the Lord prolongs days. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. For this is man's all, Solomon would say. Fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. To the degree that we have no experience of this fear, none at all, to the degree that we don't experience this fear is to the degree that we are ignorant, ignorant of our own sinfulness and ignorant of his glory, ignorant of our own sinfulness and ignorant of his holiness, ignorant of our own sinfulness and ignorant of his majesty, right? All the more reason, if we're ignorant of that fear, all the more reason that we will fear in the day of judgment. In Revelation chapter 1, in, jo- in verse 17, John is given a vision of the risen and exalted Christ, and he does what a fallen human being does. He fell at his feet like a dead man. Quite contrary to many crazy charismaniacs in our day who said they frolicked in the glass sea with him or, you know, played Monopoly with him before he ascended into heaven, right? Just these foolish claims. How does a sinful man respond when presented with this vision? John fell at his feet like a dead man. The Lord, though, knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. The Lord knows our weakness. The Lord sees us in pity, The Lord, more worthy of fear than anyone else, period, (laughs) responds to John then in grace and in mercy. He responds to John by strengthening him and encouraging him. Verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me, that's significant, saying to me, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last I am he, John, who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So he lays his right hand on John. Hand of authority, hand of blessing from a father to his son. Hand of sovereign rule. And with it, Jesus Christ comforts John. He touches Daniel. And lifts Daniel to his feet. He lays his hand upon Ezekiel and sets him upright. He purges the sin of Isaiah by touching his lips with a burning coal. He commissions Peter. He commissions Paul to his service. With a touch of his hand, he heals the sick, raises the dead, forgives the sinner, cleanses the leper. And here he lays his right hand on John. Do not be afraid, John. Do not be afraid. It's an imperative here, a command. Literally says to John, John... Stop being afraid. (laughs) Stop being afraid. You know me. Think, consider, look to me in faith. The one whom John fears is the one whom John is to trust when he's afraid. Who else can we go to when we're afraid? Who else can we go to when we're in need? But the Lord Jesus Christ who cares for us, right? God, our heavenly Father, not our condemning judge any longer, but in Jesus Christ, our heavenly Father. We're to lay our supplications, our petitions in his lap. Cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Psalm 56 verse three, the psalmist says, whenever I am afraid, 
I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. So with the laying on of his hand, touching John, Jesus dispels John's fear. says to him, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And the one whom we should fear is the very same one who dispels all our fear. That's grace. The one whom we should fear, the one who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing, is the one who dispels our fear. That's grace. That's mercy, right? That's condescension. The one who is exalted in glory, exalted in majesty, the one worthy of all dominion, all power, all might, is the one with the touch of his hand that dispels the fear of a sinful, fallen, rebellious man, woman, child, boy, girl. He rightly and justly reveals the reality of our fearful circumstances so that he might be the one in grace and in mercy who delivers us from our bondage to fear. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, going through Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God has revealed and is revealing his wrath even now against all unrighteousness of men. And because God is present, active, ongoing, now revealing his wrath, we are to fear God. God is holy. God is not to be trifled with. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. We're going to give an account to God. Fear the Lord. And yet at the same time, that's why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because as the unrighteousness of man is on display and God is revealing his righteous wrath against all unrighteousness of men, it's at the same time that God, through Jesus Christ, provides a substitute, provides a savior. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The very one whom we should fear, the very one who will pour out his wrath against all unrighteousness is the very one who provides for our fear and gives us cause to cling to him in love, gives us cause to fall at his feet in worship rather than falling to his feet in slavish fear. He has revealed in the gospel the righteousness that we need to stand before him justified. He is the one who delivers us from the fear of his own wrath. Do you see? He's the one who delivers us from the fear of his own wrath. It's the fear of God's judgment, the fear of God's wrath that leads us to flee to Christ for salvation. It's the condemnation of the law. It's the curse of the law, the promise of eternal death that sends us running to the cross. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. In other words, I am the first and the last. Jesus Christ is saying, I am God. I am God. God, he is God in the flesh. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who created all things, the first and the last. He is before all things, Paul says, and in him all things consist, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, he says, look to me, I am alive forevermore, 
Amen. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said to Mary, didn't he? The death of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? Do you believe? He who believes in me, the Lord says, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever believes in me, Jesus Christ says, will never die. Awesome, right? Awesome. He is the one who lives and was dead and behold, he is alive forevermore. Why? Because he has defeated death. Because he's conquered the grave. And whoever believes in me, Jesus Christ says, shall never die. And then what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And what is that a picture of? Brothers and sisters, that's a picture of him raising you and I from the dead in him. He's the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. And all those who are trusting him, all those who have turned from sin to put faith in Jesus Christ will be raised together with him at the resurrection. And then he says, amen. <laughs> we should all say amen. Amen? amen. amen. It's a resounding affirmation. A resounding affirmation. He is the one who is alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. He is the one who has been raised from the dead. Amen. Having been raised from the dead, by that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you and I will be raised from the dead. Amen. Where's our hope? Our hope is in that, right? He's the Lord of the church, the firstborn, the resurrection. Amen. John saw Jesus Christ die. Remember that? John was at the cross. John was at the cross. Jesus Christ looks to the beloved apostle, the one whom he loves, and he says to John, John, behold your mother, right, taking care of his mother. And from that day, John says, I took her into, into my home, right? He was there when Jesus Christ breathed his last, saw the Son of Man die. And yet Jesus Christ lives. And G John saw the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, listen. But now, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Unless the Lord returns, we're all going to fall asleep. It's a euphemism, a kind way of referring to the death of the Lord's saints. Right? Uh, the death of his saints, precious in the Lord's sight, they sleep. Jesus Christ has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The first fruits of what? The first fruits of the resurrection. For since by man came death, by man, Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ that is coming. Well, some may say, well, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Widow of Nain's son raised from the dead. Not like this. Not like this. Lazarus was not, Lazarus, Lazarus was raised from the dead. And then what happened to Lazarus later? He died. <laughs> Lazarus died. And now Lazarus sleeps, as it were, awaiting the first resurrection. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and now lives forevermore. Always living, making intercession for us, Right? He is the first glorified man in heaven. <laughs> awesome thought. So, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death will not hold us who have put our trust in him. Death will not hold us. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot enter, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is engulfed. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... In light of these things, how should we respond to these truths? What are we supposed to do here while we're awaiting his return? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Revelation 1.18, he has the keys of Hades and of death. As the one who has conquered death, he has the keys. Only he can raise us. Death is conceived of as a prison. The wages of sin is death, and you are a sinner. You are confined, apart from Jesus Christ, you are confined under a sentence of death and awaiting execution. You've been given, your sentence has been handed down. It was handed down the day you were conceived. That sentence handed down, you're now simply awaiting execution. There's no hope, hope of escape. No hope of escape. The only means of escape that has been provided is the means of the Son of God. Jesus says, Jesus says, I unlock the door which no one else can unlock. I have the keys of Hades and of death. I have the keys of Hades. No one else can unlock the door. I'm the one with the keys, right? My people will not abide under the power of death. Those who belong to Jesus Christ will live. They'll live forevermore. They will be raised together with me. Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. It's upon this pronouncement then that the Lord Christ commissions John. Verse 19, write then, John, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And we've considered these verses several times now in preceding sermons. So we won't go into too much detail now as we consider them. John is instructed to write. First, John is instructed to write those things which will be revealed to him, the things which he has seen. What John sees, he is to record, he's to write down. And we see, as it were, with the eyes of faith through the vision given to John. And those things, many of them symbolic, many of them figurative, we're to see and we're to ponder and we're to understand. Not recreating the image as it were in our minds so that we know what Jesus Christ looks like, so to speak, but 
through the symbols, through the vision given to John, we're to understand what is being communicated through the use of those visions. We are to see with the eyes of faith what John, what has been revealed to John. Second, John is to write those things which are, or those circumstances as they presently are in the state of the church, the state of the church militant. From those days in which John first wrote until our day, right? This is the tribulation. It is the period of the church, the tribulation, and it is the period in which John writes to the church militant to comfort the church. He is to write the things which are. Third, he is to write those things which will take place after this, the future return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, the judgment of the wicked. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The Lord is going to tell us what these symbolize. Again, symbols, what do they symbolize? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And again, we've gone through each of these symbols in detail. The angelos, or the messengers of the churches, are ministers of the gospel. Ministers of the gospel. That includes you, and that includes me. Right? We're given the great commission, told to preach the gospel to every creature, not to hide our light under a basket, but to set our light on top of a lampstand, right? God's people called to turn many to righteousness. And Daniel says, those that turn many to righteousness shine as stars in the brightness of the firmament forever. If the lampstands are the churches, then the people of God, ministers of the gospel, those who preach the word of God to this lost and dying world, those who carry the word of God into the darkness are the lights that sit atop the lampstands. Lights that shine in a dark place. They go into this dark place with the testimony of Jesus Christ with the everlasting gospel to preach on their lips. His lampstands, verse 20, are the seven churches. The number seven, as we previously established, number of completion, a number of perfection, referring to the entirety of his people, referring to the entirety of his church on the earth. And this is meant to comfort his people, to comfort the churches, to charge the churches, to encourage the churches. This vision revealed to John should be a terror to his enemies, right? Paul says, doesn't he? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, this should be a terror to them. But to those who love him, this is a great comfort, isn't it? A great encouragement. You can imagine John sitting there on the Isle of Patmos, having been persecuted for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's been exiled. He's been mistreated, to say the least. And John, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of this message, exiled to the Isle of Patmos and suffering. And in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of his difficulty, John given a vision of the exalted Christ in his glory. As though Jesus Christ were saying, you're going to be with me, John, soon. Endure to the end, John. Endure to the end, brother. Endure to the end, sister. You'll be with me soon in glory. And John, following the path of his Savior, following the same path that Jesus Christ takes, suffers and then will enter his own glory as the Lord Jesus Christ sees fit. It's meant to be a comfort to those who love him, to those whom he loves, right? To those whom he loves, he comforts them. Do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. 
Look to the Lord in faith. Our Lord has gone before us. Our Lord has blazed that trail. He is the first fruits. He is the first and the last, first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, and we have placed our faith and trust in him. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. We've placed our trust in him. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. As Paul would say, abound in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast, brother. Be immovable, sister. Your labor, your labor here is never in vain. Pour yourself out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Break the flask of oil and anoint the Lord's feet and the Lord's head. Make yourself, as it were, as Paul commands us in Romans chapter 12, an acceptable sacrifice, a living sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pour yourself out for him. He is worthy, worthy of our love, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our affection, and our labor in him is never in vain. And when he comes, he'll call us to himself and take us where he is also. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we're grateful to you for these glorious promises that we have in your word. We're grateful, Lord, for this vision that you've given us now with the eyes of faith through your servant, John. We're thankful, Lord, that you've condescended to disclose yourself, to reveal yourself in these ways, to encourage us. And who are we? Lord, we, apart from you, are less than nothing, Uh, the off-scouring of all things. But because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, uh, as the hymn says, our value in that has been set. And we praise and worship our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he is our bridegroom, because he is worthy, uh, we, Lord, know that we shall be exalted in him. We know, Lord, that as co-heirs of Christ, we shall enter his glory to the praise of your grace. And we thank you for this hope of the church. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in light of that hope, that we'd be encouraged by that hope, strengthened by that hope, motivated and fueled by that hope, that it would drive us as we serve to serve you in this life. It may be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.